management is about human beings. Its task is to make people capable of joint performance, to make their strengths effective and their weaknesses irrelevant. That quote is from Peter Drucker. It's one of the many useful quotes collected in Ron Lichty's book, Managing the Unmanageable, and it illustrates why we work in teams. When we collaborate with each other, we make each other's strengths effective and our weaknesses become irrelevant. To collaborate effectively, we need leaders. We need management. Ron Lichty spent six years managing engineers at Apple and many more years in management and director roles elsewhere. In his book, Ron lays out the lessons he learned in 30 years of these engineering management roles, and he also describes concrete strategies for how to manage engineers productively. An engineer who becomes a manager needs to learn new skills, and the hardest skills to master have nothing to do with technology. Prioritizing the right projects, allocating engineering resources, making architectural decisions, all of these skills are important. But the art of relationships, the art of diplomacy and language, it's harder to learn than any technical skill. How do you motivate an engineer to do something that is boring? How do you have a difficult conversation with an engineer who needs to improve? When a conflict between engineers comes up, do you confront the conflict head-on, or do you wait for those engineers to resolve it among themselves? These questions do not have easy answers. And the best way to learn how to react to these situations is to live through them, unfortunately. The second best way to learn is to read and listen to people who have seen so much of the management dynamic that they can distill it into anecdotes and aphorisms. In today's show, Ron shares several stories that changed how I think about management. Ron and I did not have time to discuss everything I wanted to, and I recommend checking out his podcast episode on Software Engineering Radio for more detail. That link is in the show notes for this episode. And I also recommend checking out his book, Managing the Unmanageable, which is also linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Ron for coming on the show. Ron Lichty is the author of Managing the Unmanageable. Ron, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thank you. I have a bunch of questions for you about management, particularly managing software engineers, which you have a ton of experience in. And the questions that I want to start with are mostly related to experiences I have had personally, being managed by engineers, engineering managers, and as well as some experience managing engineers myself. And the first question I have is something that is very close to my heart because it, it, I would say it was the number one frustration slash difficulty I had as an engineer. And that is the question of boring work. So if you're, if you're managing engineers and the engineers are doing work that is frankly boring, I mean, this is a frequent thing that's going to come up. How do you keep engineers engaged when the work that they have to do is boring or otherwise uninteresting to them? Well, I think the first thing you need to think about is what's the, what's the contribution that work's going to make to the product, to the company, to the customers, to the team, and to the world? One of the, one of the fundamental roles that managers have is to connect the dots basically between the work that any individual programmer is doing and the and the contribution to all those places to the to the team to the product to the to the company and to the world and you know what it, it's really helpful to work in a company that's got a company mission that people can get behind but fundamentally and Jeff I'm, I imagine this is true for you it's certainly true for me most of us got into engineering because we wanted to make a difference in the world and knowing that and even boring work can be really meaningful knowing that it's going to make a difference to somebody if we do it and i you know i think so i think that's i think that's the the biggest piece for for engineers for developers for testers for those of us who are technical is just knowing we're making a difference in people's lives so uh, that was kind of the argument that was levied at me when I was at Amazon, for example. So I, I spent a little bit of time at Amazon 
and you know that's that was sort of the gist that I would get would be like, hey, I know you're working on this service that you're not super passionate about, but you know, think of the scale. That yes, this is just a system that calculates taxes on items that come in, but it's calculating taxes on every item that comes into Amazon. Isn't that exciting? And uh, you know, I've heard other engineers who work at big companies and they say that this is a similar tactic that is used by their managers where their manager says, listen, I know this is not a super exciting project where you're refactoring this UI component that's going to take a month, but think of the impact. Think of the number of people that will be affected by you. And there are engineers who just hear that and they're like, yeah, I still don't care. I don't care if a million people are going to be seeing the new icon. It, it just doesn't, still doesn't motivate me. Is that a sign that such an engineer is just in the wrong place? Is it is that just going to be a non-starter? Or is there some sort of way to recover that sort of situation? Well, it may be. Or one of the other opportunities I uh, hear for managers talking to developers is it may be boring to do that work, but it's maybe significant from a technical standpoint. You know, one of the one of the things that I've done with teams is to make sure that we're that we're as a team every engineer on the team is making a contribution to that team and making sure that every one of them is sharing what it is that they're doing with the rest of the team from an architecture standpoint from a you know it may be it it may be that there's a lot of piecework to be or a lot of a lot of work that seems insignificant but that lot of work is a it can be that lot of work can be communicated to the rest of the team in ways that explain how the whole system works and you want to get you want to get engineers whiteboarding what their solutions are for the rest of their teams as well you know it, it there's there's a there's a technical contribution and there's a there's a you know customer contribution and there's a product mm-hmm. contribution all all of those things are wrapped up and key for managers is to understand what motivates every one of their engineers and it may be that you've got an engineer that is just not motivated to be on this team and that happens and you know we need to help them find somewhere else to work and in a big organization, they often have these kinds of things where you can't switch teams unless you've been at a play, at, been in a specific role for n months, some number of some period of time before you can switch. Are you a fan of that policy, or does it just vary from the company to company? Is that just an, a policy that you have to have when a company is at a certain scale? Otherwise, you just have too many moving pieces. Good question. <laughs> Good question. It does vary from place to place. It varies totally from place to place. What I see is that it's a general, uh, you know, I think it's useful as a general rule or a general principle, but it's also, it's where it's, where it's effective is when managers and HR can work together to customize it to the individuals that we're talking about. Hmm. I think saying that there's some one universal rule that has to work for everybody is not terribly useful, but it's it's good as a guideline. Yeah. And part of the reason I start off with these kinds of questions is because your book is called Managing the Unmanageable. And when I imagine an unmanageable person, I imagine these kinds of issues where you have an engineer who simply is in a role that they do not like. And they're clearly talented. They made it through the interview process. They have some set of skills on their resume or some set of side projects that is clear evidence that they are talented and they're capable of getting stuff done. And yet they're in a role where it seems that they just simply are not productive. And these things happen so often. I think they definitely happen in software engineering, particularly because engineers have so much latitude you know i think in some cases you could say engineers even kind of get spoiled because we have such a plentiful set of opportunities so we are definitely in a position to take an unmanageable attitude let's let's talk about conflict 
Yeah, before before we oh. move before we move into conflict, let me just sure. let me just suggest Reed Hoffman, who I who was the founder of LinkedIn before he founded LinkedIn. Reed and I worked together at Fujitsu. Oh, oh wow! wow. Uh, he was our he was one of our product managers, and I was leading engineering on an online animated virtual world product. Reed wrote a book in. Wait, was this SocialNet? No, it was before SocialNet. It was at Fujitsu. Okay. It was a it was a product called Worlds Away, which was the it was the third iteration of a an online animated virtual world that was originally called Habitat, that originally ran on the Commodore sixty four in ages ago <laughs> it was the original it was the original online animated virtual world we were doing the third generation of that and reed came from apple and when he left fujitsu then started social net and then after that started linkedin reed has written a book on on hiring and recruiting and getting people into jobs that i think it's got a really valuable concept in it which is this notion of terms of duty and his concept, his his realization that he puts out there in his book, and I've forgotten what the name of, of the, the particular book is, but the concept he puts out there is this concept of terms of duty, which is we have this, we, we kind of conjure up this idea that people are going to come work for us forever and that we're going to employ them forever. And, and in both of those cases, neither, neither of those is true. And rather than doing that, let's, let's identify a term of duty it might be two years or three years or five years, and look at what do you want to, what do you, the employee, what do you, the programmer, want to get out of that term of duty? What do you want to learn? What do you want to, how do you want to grow? What skill set do you want to have at the end of the term of duty that you want to take on to your next role, whether that role is in our company or somewhere else? And what do we want to get out of it from your having been here? And I think that's a really valuable, really important conversation to have in the hiring process when whether it's an engineer or a manager or or an executive is coming into a company what it is that what it is that they want to get out of having been at our company and what it is we want to get from their having been here and having that a very very serious conversation about the contributions we're going to make to each other i think really sets up a different different relationship and a different way of working. Yeah, I can't remember if that... I read Reed Hoffman's... The books that he wrote, he has a co-author that I think he wrote both of his books with, or at least one of them. One, At least one of them is called The, the Startup of You, which is kind of a cheesy title, but it gets at this idea where it's basically like you as a person can operate like a startup in the sense that you have a long-term vision for where you want to get to, and it's an ambitious vision. And if you think about it in terms of the startup of you, maybe that vision is can have different constraints than the type of vision you would have of the startup of a business. Because the startup of you, you could say, like, I want to scale into a person that can manage people. I want to scale into a person that has good understanding of business finances. I want to scale into a person that has great ability to deploy code in a, a scale a, a high scale organization and i think the the whole idea of the the or is it tour of duty i think is might have been the, the term that they use but it's they have this reed hoffman talks about this idea like if you're managing particularly an unmanageable person you say look I get it. You know, you you don't want to be here long term, right? Like, let's be honest. You want to be here two, like one, you know, one to to three years, and then you want to go on your way and do something else that's higher upside, higher impact, more closely aligned with your artistic interests, whatever it is. But for those one to three years, you know, you're going to have to contribute to the company, and we need to find a way that our interests align during that tour of duty. And alluding back to myself is just. A personal example, that's something I probably should have done more effectively when I was at Amazon. Instead, I was a little more impatient about doing something that just impacted me positively. And if I would have done, if I would have taken a step back and said, okay, how can I evaluate this tour of duty in a way where I can grow really effectively and then have a good exit from Amazon after about, you know, a year and a half or something, one of these more respectable tours of duty rather than the eight month 
employee that looks you know terrible on your resume and so on, I probably would have had a more effective experience there. And I think from the point of view of the manager, just keeping in mind that your employees are probably not going to stay, they're not going to be lifers anymore. You're, they're going to be do tours of duty. This is not a lifer business anymore. So does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's Startup of You. I think it was his next book. Okay. Wow, what was, what, was, what was that other one? What was his next book? Are you, are you looking it up right now? Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. The, the Alliance. Alliance. That's what it is. Okay, Reed Hoffman's managing, book is... Man, managing Talent in the Networked Age <laughs> okay. is the subtitle. But the alliance, the alliance, and and the alliance is a great is a great title for that book because what we're looking for in a tour of duty is what am I going to contribute to you? What are you going to contribute to me? What is the contribution this company is going to make to your career? What's the contribution you, while you're here, are going to make to this company? And and it's it's essentially creating an alliance for that tour of duty period, and not saying that we're going to employ you forever because that never that almost never happens it's it's really rare these days and also not saying that you're going to stay here forever because that also rarely happens these days and we're really looking for how do we form an alliance for some period of time and at the end of that alliance let's be honest with each other and look at is there an opportunity here for your next tour of duty or do we need to help you find the next place and you know if you made the kind of contribution that our alliance asked you to make, I'm going to be overjoyed to try to find you the right place, whether it's in our company or another one. Yeah, absolutely. So conflicts occur within a engineering organization. And whether those conflicts are between a manager and an employee or between two employees, it is oftentimes the job of the manager to resolve a conflict. What are the circumstances that create conflict, and how do you avoid conflict? And then once a conflict occurs, how do you resolve it? Do you resolve it head-on? Do you just avoid the conflict and try to find a way around it indirectly? Tell me your philosophy around conflicts. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think that avoiding conflict is the right way to think about it. I do think that we need to set up a culture of collaboration and a culture of cooperation and a culture in which we work together and in which we find solutions together. That said, having, you know, conflict arises out of, you know, two different programmers having entirely different approaches to uh, or entirely different thinking about or entirely different architectures or entirely imagining a solution entirely differently, as well as uh, <laughs> as well as the petty stuff. You know, I don't like the clicking you make when you're thinking. <laughs> But we need to, we need, you know, one of the, one of the goals as for managers is to set up a culture of collaboration and of communication because fundamentally software development is a team sport. And we need to not have jerks in our teams fundamentally. One of the learnings that many of us have along the way is we put up with a jerk too long who we should have helped out of the organization or out of the team. Often a brilliant jerk. Often a brilliant jerk, which is why we put up with them. They weren't brilliant. We probably would have helped them out of the team earlier. Almost to a one, managers I've talked to, my own experience has been managing jerks out earlier is always better. Yeah, I I agree with that. Do you have any stories about managing a conflict improperly, like when you made a mistake, like things that just stick out in in terms of conflict management, where either you were too soft or too hard, or you moved too quickly or you moved too slowly. What are the top mistakes in terms of anecdotes that come to mind? Yeah, so the top mistakes are always moving too slowly (laughs) in dealing with conflict that's unhealthy for the organization or for the team. The first, so I, I really lucked out as a manager in, so I began my managing career at Apple. I was hired into Apple to create and manage a product management group 
having been a programmer for seven years, I did that for a year and a half. And then immediately, immediately when Apple blew up my grip, when Apple reorged, I immediately headed back into engineering again and started managing software and started being a programmer and then managing software developers and then being a programmer and managing software developers. I went back and forth several times before I embraced management as a career. But as I said, I lucked, I really lucked out in the sense that I didn't have that kind of conflict. You know, maybe I lucked out, maybe I created the culture that I wanted to create, but a couple of companies later, I walked into a culture that the person who had been the team lead was pretty toxic to the team. And he had been he had just been demoted before I arrived to just a member of the team. But he continued to be toxic. And I let that go for I let that go because I didn't want to deal with it. I think most of us, most of us who are managers don't like dealing with conflict. Most of us who are people don't like dealing with conflict. It's a people issue more than a manager conflict, more than a manager issue. And it's probably endemic to programmers. Most of us who are programmers are, you know, there's a, there's a, the people who do Myers-Briggs have told us that most of us who are programmers all have the same personality type. Something like 70 plus percent of us are INTJs and the I stands for introverted. And we tend to not want to deal with interaction in generally stepping up into managing is a big change in thinking about interaction and dealing with conflict is is the worst end of that but i had the benefit in that very first conflict situation that i had an i had a, a coach who had written the book on handling problem employees and i truly had a problem employee at that point and he coached me through handling that employee in what I thought was a very humane, very, in a a way that was very, I I don't want to say friendly because it wasn't friendly, but it, but it was, it was, it was a very human relationship. It was a very human way of, of dealing with a problem employee by pointing out the, the impact that that person's behavior was having on the rest of the team and devising a a plan going forward that would that would result in change that would result in change from that employee result in change for that team now when you sit down with somebody who you're you have a conflict with how important is the preparation before that conversation because my experience is that it's super important and you almost have to map out in your head the decision tree where you say, okay, here's the thing I'm going to start with. Here is how I'm going to phrase it in a way that will not be super offensive, but will get my point across. Here are the different ways where he might respond, he or she might respond. Here are the responses I will give to that. It sounds like over-engineering a human interaction, but it's one of those things where it's like planning or plan, what is it? Plans are nothing. Planning is everything where you really, you do want to do this because your impulse the the improvisation that you will have during a conflict will almost always be incorrect. Yeah, the planning. So that very first one. So that coach who took me through it, the planning was days of planning for that yeah. meeting. For a single conversation. For a single conversation. And and I should say that when I've when I've done these and I've probably done a half dozen of them in my career where I've got somebody who's who has has to change either has to change or has to leave and I want to have that conversation before I get to the HR plan I want to have a conversation with HR and tell them I'm doing this but there's this HR plan thing and this is really an intervention that I'm that I'm trying to create before I get to the HR plan my coach was a guy named Marty Brownstein. Yeah, Marty had written a book called Handling the Difficult Employee. And I've got a copy of Marty's book. I've never read my copy of Marty's book, even though I've recommended it to other people because I had Marty. Marty walked me through the planning for this. And the pl- this this is a meeting. And this is, this is how that first meeting went at that company. I, reserve, I set up a meeting with that employee for either an hour or an hour and a half but I reserved the room for half a day. And that, and that meeting lasted for almost half a day. 
And I spent probably two days planning that meeting. And that two days planning that meeting had to do with identifying the, first identifying the behaviors that I needed to be changed, but then being able to address those behaviors in terms of impacts. So the impact of those behaviors, some of the impacts of those behaviors included the fact that I had just spent two days planning a meeting with his employee to deal with this, these behaviors. <laughs> they were, there, were, uh, there were impacts on the whole rest of the team. There was impacts on the team's morale. There, was Im- there were impacts on the uh, quality of the code. There were impacts on how other people delivered the quality, other people on the team delivered the quality of the code. There were impacts on customers. There were impacts on, and so I literally had a a list of impacts that the behavior resulted in. And the interesting thing that Marty taught me was that, or the interesting realization of what Marty taught me was that while an employee may argue with your perception of their behavior, it's pretty hard to argue with impacts. It's pretty hard to argue with the fact that I've just spent two days planning for this meeting. It's pretty hard to argue with the morale of the team, with with an observation about the morale of the team. It's pretty hard to argue about the quality of the code and the result of the behavior on the quality of the code. And so by not by talking less about behaviors and more about impacts, mm-hmm. now we're talking about what it is, how those impacts need to be changed, and what it is the past has represented, what the future needs to represent. Uh, and so this was a meeting in which it started out with my presenting impacts, and then in Marty's, I'm, I'm going to say in Marty's words, although this is so long ago that I don't know what his words were, but he basically said, you're going to put out the impacts and then your employee is going to is going to let out whatever they need to let out they're going to deny it they're going to go into rationalizations they will do any amount of talking they want and your job is to listen until they're done and so the interesting thing so you are saying do you plan for all of the all of the possible ways this conversation could go no, I have no idea. I had no idea what he was going to say at that point. And to Marty's point, what my job was, was to listen reflectively until he was done, to just hear him out and and to listen reflectively, to really hear him, not just let it come at me, but to to really hear him and then to come back to, okay, but we've got these impacts that we have to change. And we need to come up with a plan that we're going to change them. And that plan is going to mean that we have to have a plan going forward with check-ins that are that might be every day or it might be every three days or it might be every week or it might be every two weeks. But So there's a huge commitment on the part of a manager to, to that turnaround. But And Marty's claim at the time, and this has been my experience with one exception, that and that an employee who has that really honest conversation with whom you engage in that really honest conversation about the uh, how the impacts have to change and coming up together with a plan that that will make that change that employee will either stay and make that change or that employee will leave and that gets out of the whole HR plan it gets out of the whole firing thing it gets out of wow. all of that all of that aftermath is over. You're you're getting it done in this meeting. You're getting it done in this meeting with the plan that has to go forward and the commitment you have to make to to the employee to meet with them and to follow through. So you lay out objective facts so that this is not an emotional conversation because you can keep referring back to objective facts and you're not going to get into some debatable loop. You can say, "Hey, look, you left out a semicolon in this line of code and you did you left out a unit test in this highly sensitive matter. You did these eight things, and and then here are uh, anonymized comments that your teammates have given you. You're unreliable. You know, another one of your teammates said you didn't show up to five meetings in a row. You know, you just have these objective things. So it's not an emotional yeah, conversation. So I mean, and, and it's so it's and it's not the words you're unreliable. It's the words 
when you didn't show up to those five meetings, your teammates were unable to move forward. Right. So it's cast not in terms of their behavior, but cast in terms of their impact. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's a really lot of work for a manager to... Right. This is not how my brain thought. I'm not sure it's how my brain thinks now, but it definitely was not how my brain thought 20 years ago when I did that first one. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, this whole defusing of a problematic, unmanageable employee seems like one of the pillars of becoming a good manager because if you if you do it correctly... You're going to be viewed as humane. You're going to recover difficult to recover situations, and you're going to avoid giant HR issues. And if you do it incorrectly, then you're going to have you're going to be seared in that employee's memory as that horrible manager that I had. Because these are the types of conversations and interactions. I mean, I'm probably referring to some to something that happened to you 20 or 30 years ago, and it sounds like it's crystal clear in your head. And you aren't even the one being criticized. So I'm sure for that employee, that whole half day, probably his entire day that day, is seared into his memory. And probably seared into his memory is a vision of you as a more sympathetic, reasonable person than uh, could have otherwise happened if you would have had less preparation. I'm sure that's true. Yes, I'm sure that's true. It reflects, and so I'm going to reflect back on an earlier one, the very first performance review I gave. In the very first performance review, so, you know, all of us walk into managing with role models. And the typical role model, the role models most of us have for managers, in, in my experience and in talking to a lot of managers and a lot of employees, managers in program of programming teams tend to either be micromanagers or they tend to throw their employees into the deep end and see whether they sink or swim but they don't have a lot of but but uh, <laughs> human interactivity and human factor human human interactivity skills are not strengths in technical people generally and we don't have and it's partly because we don't have a lot of role models all of my role role models were managers who had thrown me into the deep end to see if I could sink or swim and I sort of thought that was how this manager thing worked until and because I and because I had the advantage of managing at Apple initially Apple had uh, Apple had Apple University. Apple had a set of coursework internally for managers. There was there was nothing in Apple's curricula that was specific to managing programmers, but there were a lot. There were a number of classes on on managing in general and on becoming a better manager. The very first one I took was managers in the law. My my manager told me I was going to take that, and it was a half day class, and I came back with my jaw having dropped for <laughs> things I had not known about managing in the law and that were really valuable. And I thought, okay, so I need to keep taking classes because I clearly there's clearly a lot to learn here. And I think the second one was situational leadership in which you need to take into account the, the juniorness or seniorness of a, a particular employee combined with their knowledge and, and experience and wisdom in the particular, and for a programmer, the particular code they're working in, and take into account where that employee's at in terms of how, <laughs> how much of a deep end you can throw them into. The very first employee I had was a kid out of college and I had thrown him into the deep end and it was now two months into his tenure when I took this situational leadership class I came back from class sat him down and said I think that I've really erred on your part I'm sorry I've thrown you in the deep end I'm actually now going to provide you considerably more support in what you're doing and we're going to have I'm here for you in a different way and he, he, he breathed this audible sigh of relief and you know i think i think that we as man you know i've talked to a number of managers about this and and all of us almost to a one 
are apologetic to the first people who worked for us because that transition from being an individual contributor to being a first-time manager is a, is, is, is a hard one for us, but it, it's a hard one for those first employees. I was starting to talk about that performance review. Uh, when I gave my first performance review, I had this notion of, you know, I'm, I'm telling you what's wrong with you. And, and it was really uncomfortable. I really hated doing it. I disliked it enormously. And as I thought through that process, as I thought through that interaction over the next few weeks, I realized that the next performance review I wanted to give, I wanted to give it in an entirely different way. And I did give it. And, and I totally changed how I gave performance reviews from the first one to the second one. The second one, what I envisioned was sitting down on a park bench with my employee. And it's sort of sort of the, it's why Reed Hoffman's book, Alliance, The Alliance, so resonated with me, was I imagined sitting down on a park bench with my employee, looking out at the horizon and saying, tell me about where you want to go. Let's envision out there on the horizon where you want your career to go. Let's now talk about what's standing in your way and what's going to get you to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a really different conversation yeah. for a performance review and one that's enormously helpful to the people that work for you and one that's enormously helpful to you getting what you want from the what the, the contribution you want from the employees who work for you. Yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't assume that they're going to be lifers. It assumes that they may be people who might leave the organization and they want to develop skills that are agnostic of the organization. But it also gives you the opportunity to say, no, not to say, you know, you're, you're really screwing up, but to say, here's what's standing in the way of your reaching where it is you want to go. Yes. Yes. Agreed. I want to shift to talking about something. Is it something that is a, you know, a little more, day to day, you know, not necessarily managing conflict or doing performance reviews or something, but just a management idea that uh, I read. I've read it in a couple different places, but the the place that sticks out is Peter Thiel saying about his management days at PayPal, and PayPal is often regarded as one of the best managed companies, one of the most uniquely managed companies. And you can see that by the PayPal mafia and how successful the people that came out of PayPal have been. And one of the management tips that Peter Thiel says from that event, and you know, people have varying beliefs on you know whether they agree with Peter Thiel on certain things or not, but you can't dispute that he's an effective engineer. I'm uh, sorry, effective manager. But what he says is that. To succeed as a manager, you have to give every person exactly one thing to work on, and that there is massive downside when you assign multiple things to one person. So how much do you agree with that? How Should we be assigning multiple tasks to a single person? Should we assign a chain of tasks to them? What do you think about multitasking versus single tasking? Well, multitasking, every, every single study that's been done shows that human beings do not multitask. We context switch. And context switching is enormously costly. And it's especially enormously costly, I think, to programmers. It's one of the things that, so I do, you know, what, what I've done for the last five years is, is a, I, I switched my career from being a full-time manager to consulting as an interim VP of engineering and interim VP of products and interim CTO interspersed with training teams in agile. And one of the things that I try to do in training teams in agile is to get product managers, their product owners, their, their business side of the team to recognize that multitasking, that interrupting programmers has enormous cost. The one of the, one of the questions that I'll ask developers is if you leave work on Friday afternoon, you put a bookmark into the code that you're writing and so that you can on Monday morning pick it back up again. And we're going to imagine that you don't work over the weekend and you don't think about your code over the weekend. And I know that's hard for some of you to imagine 
but we're going to imagine that. And when you come in on Monday morning, and okay, so you're going to look at your email for a little while and, and figure out where things are, but now you're sitting down in front of your code, you're in your IDE, and you're about ready to write the next line of code. How long does it take you sitting between sitting down and actually writing that first line of code? And I'll get answers that range from well, it'll probably take me 10 minutes to it'll probably take me a half hour to it'll probably take me two hours. And then we'll we'll walk through that a little bit and people will describe the process of resetting up all of the context to write the next line of code because that next line of code has implications for other lines of code that are well, some of, the, some of which are right in front of you and others of which are in other parts of the code and other files and other modules and other components and other objects. And you're forming this mental model that, that has almost certainly 10 or 12 or sometimes 20 or 30 different mental pieces in order to, in, in order to get this all set up. And so for those teams that say, well, it'll take, me, it'll take me 15 minutes to be ready to write my first line of code, I'll then say, well, so what happens when you're interrupted on Monday every 14 minutes? How many lines of code do you write during the day? And they'll look back at me and they'll say, zero. And, the, and I'll point out that that's, that that's true, except that there's this other way of doing it. So I've never met a programmer who said, I came to this company to write bugs. Uh, Jeff, have you ever met a programmer who said, I came to this company to write bugs? No, but I have come to a company and been asked to fix bugs all the time. Uh-huh, yeah. So where do, where do bugs come from if programmers don't come here to write bugs? So I think one of the places that comes from is it takes 15 minutes to set up all that context. At 14 minutes, you see one of your colleagues, or you see the product manager, or you see your manager, or you see somebody coming your way, and you think, I've got enough. I've got enough context to write this line of code, and if I don't write this line of code right now, I may never get any lines of code written today. Mm. And so you write the line of code, but you are one minute short of having enough context to write that line of code correctly. Yeah. And that's the cost of multi, that's the cost of interruptions, but it's also the cost of multitasking. Yes. Yeah. So is the implication here that as a manager, you should literally be thinking of each person be, you know, in an ideal world doing one thing at a time? Yes. So there's, I've got a, I've, I've actually come across a, a really interesting study that actually Mike Cohn has it in one of his books. In, in his book, Succeeding with Agile, he's got a, uh, a, a chart, a study that uh, shows number of projects that people are working on. This is not programmers specifically, but it's a, it's a study that shows the number of projects that people, that information workers are working on and their productivity. And it actually shows productivity going up with two projects. And then it pretty much falls precipitously with three and mm. four and five and six projects. So if you, if you do that. And, uh, and so the interesting thing is, and so I've asked this question to um, lots and lots of uh, product teams. Why do you think that productivity rises with two projects? And pretty much to a one, the two big answers one of them is, well, I get bored with something and I want to work on something else. And the other one is I get blocked on one and, I, and, mm -hmm. I, and to be productive, I need to work on something else. And the interesting thing is that that study was done in 1993 and, or 1991 maybe. It was, it was the early 90s and it was that, that was the time when intercompany email was just arriving and it was a time before all of the you know slack and irc and texting and mobile phones and you know all of the million channels that we've got of uh, electronic communication had happened and there are there are folks who have made who have contended that that first projects is already taken 
with with email. So when I sit down on on Monday morning to write code, the uh, and and programmers will say this all the time. Well, the first thing I do is sit down and look at my email. And when I'm coding, if I get blocked, the first thing I go back to is go back and look at my inbox or go back and look at Slack or go back and look at the electronic communications that have come my way because darn it, those people who email me expect that I actually read that stuff and respond to it. And what that means is that the first project's already taken and the project that I'm working on is the second one and productivity falls precipitously after that first project because what I fall back on is email and electronic communications. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. And the I guess the 20% time idea, are you a fan of that or not a fan of that? I'm a fan of organizations... I'm a fan of organizations figuring out what works for both the individuals on the team, the teams and the organization. You know, I'm I'm a fan of I'm a I am a fan of 20% time. I am a fan of Atlassian's uh, FedEx days. I'm a fan of fan of lots of I'm a fan of organizations that figure out how to make work be fun. Yeah. And productive. Right. And interesting and useful, right? And making okay. a difference. Well, and making a difference. Right, right. So yeah, maybe you have the twenty percent time in one giant batch. Maybe it's one day per week. Maybe it's in the form of you know people just have a day off uh, occasionally. But I think the twenty percent time is commonly used as a way to allow an engineer to decompress. And so many engineers decompress by doing more engineering, but it's more relaxing engineering, more free thinking, more creative, less constrained to fixing bugs. But uh, at some organizations, it might be more just taking time off and decompressing completely. I think that's what the implication of the 20% time is. Yeah. And I I think there are other alternatives. You know, I think think that life balance is really useful and important. If you look at what Menlo Innovations is doing in Ann Arbor, if you look at that, uh, that its founder, Rich Sheridan, has written about in his book, Joy, in- Joy Inc., Joy Incorporated. If you look at what Pivotal Labs does in training teams to use XP, actually both of those companies are using extreme programming. They are, code is only checked in when both members of pairs are there. They, and they only pair program. They, programmers do not work when they're not pairing and they tend to work eight or fewer hours a day because pair programming is so intense. And then people go home. And it's yet another way. So again, I'm really a fan of organizations figuring out ways that are that do not make programming that that do not attempt to have people running at hundred yard dash speeds for what is fundamentally a marathon. You have, in your book, Managing the Unmanageable, this section where you've got a large collection of quotes, and many of these quotes are useful aphorisms. I think one way of understanding management is through a series of aphorisms. Yeah, Uh, we we refer to them as rules of thumb and nuggets of wisdom. Yes, exactly. So these are things like, save early, save often. Managers must manage. Leading by example occurs whether you like it or not. These are some of, I picked out some of my favorite ones. Yeah, and, uh, and and the the I think the one in programming that both my co-author and I both both collected uh, very very early Brooks Law, adding manpower to a late project will make it later. The one I wanted to ask you about is actually leading by example. So if you're a manager and you're not writing code. How are you setting an example for your engineers? I think you're setting an example by the culture you create. You're setting an example of being a being a collaborative person and creating a collaborative team. Often you so I think that agile teams have this notion of self-organizing teams and that notion is one in which Everybody on the team needs to be a leader and needs to contribute their unique 
skills, insights, ideas, observations to the team in a way that in a lot of ways is very similar to what you see in, uh, in acting with improv groups or in music with jazz groups or maybe in sports with the, the Warriors who won the NBA championship last year. I am not a sports guy, but when at Schwab, I had a, I had a management coach who thrust a book into my hands by a guy named Phil Jackson, who it, who it turned out, I had no idea at the time because I'm really not a sports guy, but turns out Phil Jackson was the, at the time, the coach of the Chicago Bulls. He had inherited the only basketball player whose name I knew, which was Michael Jordan, who was setting all kinds of shooting records at the point at which Phil Jackson arrived, and the team was not winning. And Phil Jackson's job as coach was to create a winning team, and Phil Jackson did not do that by going out and playing basketball. Phil Jackson did that by coaching the team. The Warriors, when they won the championship last year in the at, the at the end of the third game, in which the Warriors had been up by 20 points or something like that in the first quarter and the second quarter, and then went down by almost that uh, number of points until the last minute and a half of the game, at which point they came back and won, the ESPN reporter came up to Kevin Durant at the end of the game and said, how is it what is it that makes your team so selfless and kevin durant said we practice it every day coach talks to us about it every day that's the that's the kind of that's the kind of leadership that managers need to provide to teams to get them to to form that kind of self-organizing team the you know a great programming team a great programming team is like a great basketball team. Uh, if that basketball team, at least if that basketball team is the Warriors or the Chicago Bulls under Phil Jackson or the LA Lakers under Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson so, said when my team is firing, in, in one of his books, he said, if my team is firing, they're like a jazz group. And I thought, oh, they're like a programming team. That's it. Got it. And from the management perspective, what I take away from that is that there are traits that extend from managers to the team, for example, reliability or communication or cleanliness uh, in conduct. You know, if you're a manager, you follow up with with email in a timely manner, and if you don't, then your your programmers, programmers are perceptive, they're going to see that you take three days to reply to something, and they're going to say, well, I guess that's excusable. You know, it's certainly easier to reply to something in three days than to reply immediately, and they'll copy your behavior, and your organization will immediately backslide. Uh, so you got to do that stuff responsibly, and people are going are gonna to follow suit. A- another quote, Actually, this one comes from you specifically, uh, uh, is that you cannot over-communicate. And I found this one interesting, uh, the idea that it's, it is impossible to, to over-communicate in an engineering organization, because there are places in life where over-communication can be pretty bad. So if you're negotiating over the price of a car, for example, you don't always want to communicate everything that is going on in your life. Why is engineering management a place where over-communication is a good thing? Yeah, so I think that fundamentally, so I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the example I was giving, which is jazz groups and improv groups and basketball teams. Software development is almost to an organization very similar. It's a, it's a team sport. The you're you're calling you're calling out a number of attributes, Jeff, of that that we want to be and expect of our teams. And the two that when I when I get when I ask developers to call out to think about the best the very best team they've ever been on and to call out characteristics of those teams. Two of the characteristics that almost universally come out are trust and respect. And 
almost all of the attributes that you are listing actually fall under those two things. If you get trust and respect, you are going to show up for meetings on time. You are going to actually listen to each other. You are going to communicate with each other. Fundamentally, software development is short of short of an application that you or I are writing and and we can we can be the only person writing it and we can create it and you know there are some some mobile apps that are that are small enough that we can still I think that was the the amazing thing that happened when mobile applications came out on iOS and on Android was that suddenly there were again applications small enough that a single programmer could write one of those applications uh, but most applications that most of us work on are require more than one person and when we've got more than one person working on an application it's fundamentally a team sport and we really need to talk with each other and I and I, the the notion that we cannot over communicate I think that in sales people can over communicate I think in marketing people can over communicate but I don't think in software development we can over communicate we tend to be introverts we tend to not talk with each other enough we tend to not be terribly good at talking with each other and we just need to learn that stuff and become really good at collaboration and communicating and I'll go to and I'll go to that example you're giving we've got a, a nugget of wisdom and I and I just and I just looked it up. The nugget of wisdom from Tim Swihart, who was an engineering director at Apple, who said, "Have your annual reviews done on time. Nothing undermines your credibility as a manager more completely than pounding on your team all year to get their work done on time, and then telling them that you don't have their reviews done because you are busy. Whatever yeah. you are busy with likely wasn't managing your people, so you've just proven to them that they don't matter. Good luck motivating them next year." Yeah. Yes, indeed. So I want to begin to wrap up. We touched earlier on this anecdote of you doing this difficult conversation with an employee. What are some other lessons that were very hard to learn that were like touching a hot stove where you had to learn these lessons from negative experience? Any other anecdotes would be fantastic. Well, I you know, I'll give you a couple. So one of the one of the rules of thumb about moving up the ladder, whether it's moving from programmer to manager, or moving from manager to director, or director to VP of engineering, or and presumably from VP of engineering to a CEO role, is that the things that make you successful at one level often get in your way at the next level. So uh, uh, the this is this is not uh, this was not obvious to me anyway. I don't know. Maybe it's obvious to somebody else, but it was not obvious mm-hmm. to me. And and it's really clear when you think about moving from being a programmer to being a manager. As a programmer, the thing that makes you successful is the ability to shut out the world. It's the ability to climb into the microprocessor and listen to the gates open and close. It's the ability to become one with your code one with the program you're writing, one with the computer, and shut out all of the distractions. When you become a manager, on the other hand, you really not only need to put a welcome mat out in front of your door, but to invite interruptions. Interruptions from your team, all those people who work for you, interruptions from your peers who are going to be coming to you with uh, concerns in, well, with all kinds of things, and interruptions from your boss, and it's it, and that is a, just a dramatic change, and and it's a change that if you don't see it coming, you <laughs> it is painful, and the change happens again when you become a director, and it happens again when you become a VP of engineering, and there are levels in between in large organizations that that's true of as well. For example, the realization when you become an executive that the CEO or the CIO or the SVP of engineering is operating at a is operating in bullets and they expect to be communicated to in PowerPoints and in in really short pithy communications 
And it doesn't have to do with their inability to deal with detail. It has to do with the fact that the detail is, is not relevant at that level and that you've got to communicate at a different level. And so I think that, I think that growth through the ladder is pretty universal. It's, um, there are, there's at least one really good book that, that's helpful in seeing what it is you need to learn at each level and what it is that you, you need to cast off at that level. And so I think, so I think that's one of those. Okay. Well, Ron, it's been great talking to you. It's, it's time has flown by and, uh, I, I enjoyed your interview on software engineering radio. I enjoyed your book and I expect to consult it in the near future as I become more of a manager. Okay. Wow. 